0: We began last week, or two weeks ago, last time we met, looking at the question of the the question of the world to come, this world and the next, and specifically the problem of why the Torah does not mention the world to come. Let's restate the, the problem. We'll cover very briefly the angle that we touched on by way of solution or resolution of that problem and then we'll try to move on to the next stage. problem was as follows. The partial that we read last week, in fact, states quite clearly that there's reward for the work that we do here. The English word reward is maybe, carries connotations that are not perhaps entirely synonymous with what it is that we are talking about. But the consequence of what it is that we do here is what we call reward or we call the next world. A, A much more sophisticated grasp of what it is, is that it's nothing other than your own intrinsic being It's not something that gets given to you from the outside, that's a very immature concept of reward. In fact, there are many sources that say that if a person has correctly reached that level, then you could experience it here as well. I don't know if enlightenment is exactly the accurate word, but it would be the equivalent. beautiful story they tell about one of the Hasidic masters who lived in Tzfat not that long ago. beautiful story they tell, a well-known story, is that he was sitting in his home one day when his wife walked in. She'd been down in the town of Svat, and she came home and she said to her husband, she said, Remendel, they say that the Mashiach's arrived. Somebody in town had been going around blowing a shofar and saying that the Mashiach had arrived. So she came home with that news, that's that what, pe- that what people were saying. The story is that he got up from the table, went to the window, put his head out the window, and came back and he said, no, it's not true, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. He could sense in the air of the world that nothing had changed. The Hasidim asked an obvious question, why did he have to put his head out the window? The answer is because in his own inner dimension, right, there would have been no change. In his own inner world, he was already living at that level where there'd be no difference and he was able to carve out for himself that reality so that in his own environs there would be no difference when that change ultimately occurs. He had to put his head into the outside world where he had no influence, as it were, in order to feel that. But we are going to formalize it now as a discussion of the existence in the world after this which specifically means after, after life has ended, after death, I think last time, if I remember correctly, we went through the stages, did we, of the 10,000 years we went into that, and what we're talking about when we say the next world, most specifically, although we often use (coughs) that word generically or (coughs) much more generally, (coughs) when we talk about the next world, (coughs) for purposes of this discussion, we we are talking not only about the phase of resurrection when the bodies will be reconstituted and the messianic age when People will again walk the physical earth. We're talking about the final, final stage when all of that will spiral back to its point of origin. Right? If you remember, I think we made a map, didn't we, on our blackboard? No. We said that if this section here represents the six thousand years, and we are now holding by five seven, five, nine, we're very close to the end of the six thousand years. We then have a concept that Whatever's left between us and the year 6000 as a messianic phase could vary in length from anything from could have begun in the year 4000, says the Gemara, could begin now until the year 6000. We then have a thousand years of Shabbos, which is another whole dimension. The Gemara talks about it. And then the Kabbalistic sources talk about what will be in the 8000 years and the 9000 and so forth. And according to the tradition of the Arizal, the acknowledged kabbalistic master perhaps whose, whose formulation of these things is perhaps the mainstream today <clears throat> the year 10,000 will represent a completion of all 10 dimensions of creation and things will go back to their infinite and ultimate source having achieved whatever they were meant to achieve and there's a discussion of those things in the, in the places that talk about those things. There are many other formulations of this and I think we discussed some of those that take it beyond 10,000 years but that's not our business now. So when we talk about the next world, we're not just talking about what a soul experiences when it's no longer alive. We're talking about the final, final state of of its being, and in, in formal terms, we can call it reward. I presume that we are all aware that. I think we have discussed it before as well that the state after death we don't call the world to come the official name given to that dimension that's called Alam the world of souls which exists now that's not a there's a rich literature discussing that there's no just as much as the Torah doesn't mention the world to come as the final stage it certainly does talk about certainly our sources do discuss the, the nature of the existence of where souls are now who are not alive right that the Ramchal says clearly that it's a holding point it's an intermediate dimension where some of the light or clarity of the final situation is manifest and some of the darkness of this world and there's a lot of discussion about what that is there are many sources that say that it's possible to contact souls at neshamas who are presently in that dimension although it's a prohibition to do it the <coughs> same sources say that it causes them tremendous pain many people aren't aware of that it causes them suffering and pain to be brought down and there's a whole again that's another whole discussion in its own right we're not talking about that. We're talking about the final stage, which is what we call ulama ba, the, the, the stage of, of ultimate reward, which is nothing other really than the essence or existence of the soul stripped of all its illusions and facade and, and all the raw materials that, that it was given. And it's just a rich experience of, <coughs> a complete experience of what it is and what it has become. The happiness or the ecstasy of that experience is 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 feeling or knowing perhaps is a better word that that what it what it should have done it has done that means it's an achievement of the original potential has now been brought out into the actual that is the ecstasy itself and of course the pain of that world is knowing what you could have done and should have done and did not do and now are lacking the opportunity to do that right torah teaching is that the uniqueness of this world is that it's the only place where you can generate the next world. In that world, you can't do it. That's a passive world. All you have in that world is the momentum that you built up while you were here. Again, the uniqueness of this world from a Jewish perspective is that it's the lowliest place, the place that inherently has its contamination and its lowliness, and uh, both from the side of having its own contamination that the body carries its excrement within it, and at a much deeper level, it is a world of finite boundaries, which means that it's a world of, of sacrificed options. For the world to express itself as it does, all the other forms that it could have taken must have been sacrificed. But in the, in the deeper writings, that is considered to be the ultimate pain. In fact, there are sources that say that when Adam, when Adam orishon, Adam, Adam opened his eyes and he perceived that he was in a finite world, had he realized the pain of that world, what the mystical sources call the divorce, of the physical world from its point of origin, which is the oneness of existence, had he realized the pain of that creation, despite its beauty, within its beauty, he would have fulfilled his obligation of exile forever. And instantaneously, everything would have been corrected. But but what happened was, he found himself in a world so beautiful that he failed to fully appreciate its divorce from its point of origin. Wherein lies the sensation of divorce, it is the fact that it's a finite world. And it comes from an infinite source. The infinite source is able to express all possibilities. And this world expresses only the possibilities that it does. That's an immense sacrifice of... that's, That's the greatest polarity that there could ever be. Those limitations of the world, however, from a Torah perspective, are its greatness. Because it's in that world of limitation where you have only the body that you have, but you have the body, so you can now use that body to produce what you have to produce. You have to use the tools in order to climb back out of the situation. That's why the mitzvahs are physical actions. Unlike many other spiritual systems in which the spiritual work is is an abstract work or it's a a work of, of meditation... Torah is, in addition to all of that, a work in the body. Of all the 613 mitzvahs, virtually all of them are done with the body. Virtually all, maybe a handful that you could debate. The rest are done with the physical tools of the body. What is the connection between a spiritual system that is aiming at transcending the physical world and the use of the body? The Kuzari goes into this in much more detail, the details that we cannot discuss here. You can look, at that, look it up for yourself. But that is the essence of, of Jewish teaching, is that by descending into the world of the body, by descending into the world of the limited and the contaminated, it's out of that world that you extract the re- reality that transcends it, and only that way. And that's why Judaism is, a, is not a process of asceticism. We do not, we do not talk about abjuring and, and leaving behind the physical world. The great exponents of many other, perhaps most other, if not all other spiritual systems on earth are people who are able to reach their greatness by divorcing themselves from the physical world. They don't marry, they don't use alcohol, they live a very celibate and ascetic lifestyle and the great exponents of Torah are required to sink themselves into the physical world and transcend it at the same time. It's in many ways a much more difficult process, a much more difficult process. The only exception, for reasons I'm not going to go into now, is that Moses himself, Moshe Rabbeinu, was required to separate from his wife. But that's the only exception, and it needs to be understood. And it's not for now. But it's, it's, our, it's our understanding that it's by engaging the physical world that's the only methodology of of leaving it. It's incidentally one of the reasons why all aspects of physicality have take on the feminine in Hebrew. Kalim, for example, vessels, vessels are referred to as feminine in Hebrew because it's the place the earth is always regarded as feminine in Hebrew even when the words aren't feminine Adama is a feminine word but Eretz in Hebrew although it doesn't have the structure necessarily of a feminine word it certainly takes the feminine in Hebrew and that's because the the, the, dimension, the lowest dimension of the world is always considered to be the place where birth or rebirth is taking place <coughs> that's what vessels are Kalim. Kalim means vessels or tools Those are the, 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 those are the physical objects through which that which is transcendent can be reached now this is background (coughs) we asked the question when we last met, if this is true and if if all that this world is is the opportunity to generate that status, that state of existence in the next world, then why is it that the Torah does not mention it? that was the problem we began with last time if it's so important, if it's the ultimate destination then how come the Torah does not (coughs) mention it, that's the problem Furthermore, you'll remember that we said that not only does the Torah not mention the next world, but it does talk about reward, and when it talks about reward, it mentions only this world. Right? And I, I read out the Psukim last week, and again, you can, if you weren't here, you can, <coughs> you can look it up. The Torah says that if you keep the mitzvahs and you observe the statutes of the Torah, it says it very clearly... It spells out what the consequence will be. And the consequence is rain in its season and fruitful crops. And it goes into a lengthy description of the beauty and bounty of the physical world. And that raises a double question. First of all, why does it not mention the real reward, which is the spiritual reward? And secondly, why, when it does mention reward, it does purport to talk about reward, and there it limits its discussion onto the physical. It sounds very, very much like the Torah is telling you that there is no spiritual reward. After all, when it comes to the clause in the contract that discusses reward, which it does do openly, and then it launches into a description only of physicality, what could be more of an admission in the source itself that, the, that there is no reward that transcends this? But that's the question. It's a classic question. And as I mentioned last time, the Kliyaka has seven classic answers to this question, there are, there are answers way beyond these seven, and perhaps some of the especially deep answers come from dimensions that he does not mention over here, and hopefully we'll get time to discuss that as well. But there are seven classic formulations of approaches to this issue, which the Ababa wrote and the Kliyaka summarizes, and we began to deal with them last time. So in summary, our question is, what we're trying to understand this evening is why the Torah hides the existence of the next world. You know, Rav Aaron Kotler, very beautiful. Again, it's a, one of the Torah sages of this of this century. put it like this, a very w- wonderful thing to understand. I mean, again, outside of these seven, last, last time we began with the first of the answers, right, which is the Rambods. Before we begin the second one this evening, let me share with you an avenue of insight that he, that he suggested. A remarkable idea and the lifetime of thought that can be generated by this idea alone. But uh, let, let me do my best to express it. It's not even mentioned as one of the answers. I mean, it's absolutely simple. It's, uh, it's completely basic information. Anybody who studies these areas will know that this is completely basic. But it's, for those of us who haven't studied all the basics, it's worth mentioning. It's worth speaking out. He said this. The reason that the Torah does not mention the world to come and I think I explained carefully last time that the Torah does hint about the world to come only it does not mention it explicitly there are many, many derivations between the lines last time we discussed the birth of a child and we discussed I think how a worm becomes a butterfly and, and, many, and many verses that can be read with unusual punctuations and there are many, many opportunities to derive references to the next world that are hidden within that are only given as clues within the text of the written law I've to say the following beautiful idea You know, we've shared many times together the idea that the world is a projection of the Torah. Right? That should be familiar to everybody here. That the the physical world, the, the universe that we experience is nothing other than a projection of the light of Torah. As if the Torah would be a film and the world would be a screen that projects the image of the film onto that screen. And we studied this from many angles, the word, the the reason that the word in in the Torah for a word and the word for an object is the same word, unlike other languages, davar in Hebrew means a word and it means an object, is because every object in the world is nothing other than the word the Torah uses, which is the cause of that object. There's a complete identity between every object or phenomenon in the world and the word that the Torah uses for that thing, to the extent that the word is the same for the word and the thing. A remarkable thing. But the axiom is, again, that the world is a projection of Torah. Everything in the world is exactly the way it is in Torah. One of the beautiful applications of this that I think we've looked at before is that if you have something in the world which has no name in Torah, if you experience something in the world, you witness or experience an object or a phenomenon in the world and you cannot find any word in Torah, that's a very sharp indication that the experience or object is illusory. Someone has painted that thing up on the screen of reality, but it was never projected from the source. And there are many, there are many examples of that. The word doubt, for example. The word doubt, doubt and certainty, those words do not appear in Torah. The Hebrew words for doubt and certainty are words of rabbinic origin. The Jewish people coined those words. Safek and vadai are Hebrew words that did not appear in Scripture. And the reason is because no doubt was ever created. Doubt is a problem of the side of perception. That's where doubt comes into existence. It's when the perceiver looks and is confused that doubt arises. It does not exist in the original creation. And of course certainty cannot exist if doubt cannot exist. Things are not certain when they are, they simply are. Things are only certain when they could have been in doubt. So that whole spectrum of doubt and certainty does does not appear in Torah. And there are many words, and we perhaps going to study this again in more detail on another occasion. There are many words that we use in our speech and in in our Western outlook that do not appear in the original, uh, in Hebrew itself, in (coughs) in the language of Tanakh. So the concept is, that which is existing in the point of origin, namely the Torah, will exist in the world. That which exists in the world, if it's genuine and real, it must have found its point of origin in Torah. The concept applies throughout that the Torah is the root and the world is the projection. Now, let's take it one step further. Can you see that not only must every object in the Torah appear in the world, but it must appear in the world exactly the way it appears in Torah? Yes? Again, the genes will always code for the details that the body expresses exactly. If the genes code for blue eyes, then there will be blue eyes. If the architect's plans code for a certain construction, then the building will look exactly that way. If the film depicts a certain image in a particular way, it will project itself in that way upon the, upon the screen. And therefore, not only are objects in the Torah found in the world, but the way they're found in the Torah is the way they're found in the world. Now, the world after this, the next world, is hidden here. We do not see it. It's hidden. It's a reward that will be yes, that, that at present lies beyond the horizon. It's in the and that's why it's hidden in the Torah. If the next world were mentioned openly in the Torah, then by definition you'd be able to see it while you're alive. If the Torah made it explicit, then the world would have to make it explicit. If you're gonna hide it, yes, if you're gonna if anyone with me? Yeah. If you're gonna hide the next world within this world, if you want to if you want people to live a life where there's the opportunity for, for personal work, where the consequences are not clear where you think you can get away with negative action because you don't see and experience the consequences right away, which is what life's all about. And the only reason you have free will is because there's a smoke screen behind which the true reality is living. So if you want to build a world like that, then you have to write it that way in the Torah. And therefore, in order to have a world where the next world remains hidden, and that, the reason for that is your expression of free will, if that will, be the reason, if that will be the effect you wish, then in the source you must code it that way. And therefore the Torah only hints at it so that it constructs a world in which the next world is hinted at. You understand what a worm becoming a butterfly means. You understand the reversals inherent in birth. There are many, many clues that the world offers that open up that possibility. But it could not have been written explicitly in the Torah, else it would have appeared explicitly in the creation. And that is why they parallel each other that way. Let's go to the second of the classic answers that the Kliyaka brings which he quotes in the name of the Ibn Ezra, which adds another dimension. You remember the first answer, I presume, I I presume you've all been revising what we studied together. You'll remember that we said (coughs) that the first answer he quotes is possibly the most classical of all. That's the Rambam's classic approach to this issue, and that is that the reward that the Torah mentions here is not reward at all, it is simply expenses. And these are the things that are promised to the Jewish people that if you live correctly, you will be given a bountiful and fruitful and peaceful, ultimately an utterly peaceful environment in which to pursue your spiritual goals. Right? That's an assurance that we have, that if you live correctly, we'll be given the opportunities to continue living correctly and all the obstructions will be taken away. If we live wrongly, then we promised what goes on to talk about, which is those uh, uh, horrific Holocaust curses that will befall the Jewish people and have consistently befallen us every time we defect from our obligations. This has nothing to do with reward. This is simply expenses. If you live correctly, you'll be given as a nation, not as individuals, but if you live correctly as a nation, you'll be given all that you need within peace and plenty in order to continue doing what you have to do. Live incorrectly, it will be withdrawn. And therefore, the Torah does not talk about reward at all. This is not reward, this is simply an assurance that when you go out on the road and start making deals for the company that employs you, they will pay your hotel bills and they'll pay your expensive wine bills, and they'll pay whatever you need to deal with the customer. And as much as you need, that's how much will be paid. you bring home rich deals, you'll begin a rich expense account. That is all that's discussed here. The second problem that that raises is, so why doesn't the Torah separately mention the next world? What's wrong with having a contract that, that spells out the expenses and has a clause dealing with salary? What's wrong with that? So there the Rambam says, and I think we discussed it last time, that the reason is that the whole idea of Torah is doing it out of love and doing it because it's correct. If you put salary in, then what you're saying is that I wish the employee to do it for the salary. And the employee is then tempted to relate to the contract as being, I'm serving thus because because the salary is whatever it is. We don't want the Jewish people to be a people who are serving and doing what's correct spiritually because we'll be paid a reward. There's no harm in knowing that there's a reward. That's subtly mentioned between the lines. But you don't want to write that into the contract so that the contract becomes mercenary. The best illustration I can think of, and I think we might have mentioned it last week, is in the love between two people that we call a marriage, the contractual obligation, yes, would be very, very hard and mercenary if it stipulated that I will deal well with you so that you will be sweet to me. That's not very hard to understand. A love developing between two people who explicitly set out to treat each other correctly so that it will be, yes, so that that's not the way it is. I have no problem with your knowing that if, that if I deal with you correctly, yes, if you do with me correctly, I will do, stand by you and do what I have to. Of course, we both want each other to know that it will be like that, but we don't predicate the relationship on that, on that basis. When you do something for a parent, you want to do it because of what a parent is. The fact that they then will make it worth your while because they're very generous, that's wonderful. There's no problem knowing that, and there's no problem with the parent knowing that you know that, and there's no problem with the parent giving it. But the question is, what's the motivation? It would be a very harsh relationship, a very harsh and mercenary relationship between a parent and a child, if the parent ever thought that the child's only doing what's right, because they know they'll get a rich handout. Of course, it takes maturity on the part of the child. The child needs to know that they're doing it for the parent, to the extent that they would do it, even if there would not be a handout. The fact that they know privately that there will be a, a, a very rich... And worthwhile reward, you need maturity to be able to see through that and do it anyway. But there's no harm, and that's why the missionary, as I mentioned in Picka, says you should serve because it's correct, and know that the reward will be given. However, we don't demand that the reward be written into the contract. That's not, that's not an expression of love. That is the formal first of these seven approaches to this, to this discussion, this issue. Let's look this evening at the second of the answers, which is what the Ibn Ezra. Brings and he says this again. I'm not going to go through the text, I leave that to you to, to study in detail and, and bring out all the nuances. But the, the idea that he conveys is this it needs work. He says the Torah was written for the Jewish people, not for any individual, and since not every individual can understand this concept. He means understand that which is ultimate and and, and, and infinite. He means this idea of the next world, which far transcends by definition human understanding. The Torah is, is, as it were, contractually bound. That means the Torah undertakes to be written for everybody. And therefore it does not include information that only rare individuals could understand. It's a remarkable thing. The Torah is written so that the simplest individual who can relate to it, can relate to it. And that individual must not come across things that are, by definition, beyond his understanding. And the concept of the next world, of the bonding of the soul with Hashem, which is, by definition, a paradox, that the soul will bond with, with the Creator in such a way that it becomes one with Him, and yet remains conscious of its independence so that it can feel that reward, that's a complete paradox to the oneness. That beginning of that discussion transcends virtually everybody. There are only one in a thousand individuals who can begin to relate have the refinement and the development in order, the Torah knowledge and the purity of character and so forth in order to relate to that, the Torah doesn't do that that's a remarkable idea let's try to understand this a bit more fully what does it mean that the Torah is written so that everybody can understand what does that mean? let let me share with you one one avenue of insight, just one beginning avenue of insight into, into this I heard this from Rav That's all. he put it this way. There's a Gemara, the Gemara in Megillah says that when the scripture, when Nach was translated, not Chumash, you, you're aware, I presume, that the scriptures, right, what in English they call a canon, is made up of 24 books, right, of what we call Tanakh, Torah, Neviim, and Ksuvim. Five books of Chumash and the rest being... Yahshua, Joshua, Prophets, Judges, etc. Tehidim, <laughs> all the Megillus, and Kings, Samuel, etc. All the books of prophetic revelation. When those were translated, not Chumash, when those were translated into Aramaic, right, the famous Targum, the Gemara says that the, the, the earth shook 400 parses, that means basically the dimensions of Israel, Right, which always, always means the, the, the higher means the higher world, the, the land of Kedusha, there was an earthquake, a very powerful earthquake that took place because of this translation. It had to be done, and the Gemara has a whole discussion about why it had to be done. Nevertheless, there was a shaking of the world when that translation took place. So the Gemara says, why did the world shake when this part of Torah was revealed? Because translation means a certain re- revelation. So the Gemara answers, because there were certain words that had to be translated that could not be translated. There the, the Talmud gives the example of the word Hadadrimon. There's no translation for that in Hebrew. It's a place name. It's the name of a place. But it's a, it's a mystical and mysterious name. So the Gemara says that word was untranslatable. Meaning that when you, when you do your work of translation and you come to a word like that, you have to make a decision. Either you will leave it untranslated and put it in as it stands, in which case you're failing to translate, or you will translate the word and reveal something that should not be revealed. How do we know it should not be revealed? Because in the, in the original, it was a mysterious name that hides some depth that by, perforce will be revealed if you translate the word. That impasse, that dif- difficulty, led to the translation taking place, but there was a shaking of the world because either side you could go would be problematic. That's the explanation. That's what the Talmud says, Gemma says. So, Rav Simcha is a great teacher of mine. He, he, said, he asked the following question. Why was there no earthquake when Chumash was translated? When the Chumash was translated into Aramaic, there's no record of any earthquake at all. Now we know that the Chumash is far greater than the rest of the written scriptures. Right? It stands above, it is the root. For example, you cannot learn any new mitzvahs from the rest of Tanakh. You can only learn mitzvahs from the Torah. The rest of Tanakh can only give you qualifications and details in mitzvahs. In many ways, Chumash stands higher. Proofs that are brought from, from the five books of Chumash are superior to proofs that are brought from later sources. not question that. So if there was a translation of Chumash into Aramaic, right, which surely is a more potent, surely there's more depth here. So why was there no earthquake then? means that when that translation took place, it's a classic translation that we use all the time, it was absolute, not a ripple and not a ruffle, the whole world remained totally calm. Why? So, if I was going to explain the following answer. (coughs) He said this, The depth of the hiddenness of Torah is not the same in Chumash as it is in the rest of... Tanakh. The way Torah is written is that the hidden depth, the Kabbalistic, the mystical wisdom that is put into every word of Torah, and we understand that every word has a meaning beneath the surface, and every meaning beneath the surface has a meaning beneath that, and there's not a single word in Torah that doesn't have endless layers of meaning, each one deeper than the one above it. But the difference is that Chumash is written in such a way that the hidden wisdom is completely hidden. It's called Nistar. Nistar means hidden and in Tanakh it's written in such a way that it's called Mechuseh Mechuseh in Hebrew means it's covered what's the difference between hidden and covered so I'll never forget it's a remarkable thing you're talking about a man who's 90 years old now that Tzaddik absolute saintly individual. if you ever saw his face you were never the same again I'll never forget that when he used to explain it to us he used to get up from his seat and say the following thing he used to actually demonstrate you might have to picture the scene me about one of the most righteous people who ever walked the earth in this generation he used to say like this when I go through customs <laughs> and I have something that I don't want him to see, I mean, he wouldn't never dream of doing anything like this. He's trying to give a user-friendly example. When I walk through customs and I don't want the man to see what I have, so how do I hide it? So if I put it under my coat like this, where it bulges, and I walk through customs like this, he doesn't see what I have, but he sees I have something. That's called Mochse. It's covered. It's not hidden; it's covered. It, what it is is covered, but the fact that it's present is revealed. However, if I walk through customs and it's sewn into the lining of my coat, <coughs> then I walk through. Not only does he not see what I have, he doesn't see that I have anything. That's called nista. Nista means that it's hidden to the extent that you don't see that it's there. Mukhasem means it's hidden to the extent that you see it's there, but you don't. You cannot see what it is. Khumashi he said it's written nista. The Kabbalistic, the hidden mysterious and mystical meaning in Chumash is so craft, it's so cunningly hidden that nobody sees that it's there at all. A six-year-old can read Chumash from beginning to end and translate it literally at a six-year-old level and it's all clear, there's no problem. Nach is not written that way. Nach is written in such a way that if a six-year-old tries to translate it, he's going to get stuck at the word Hadadrimon and he's not going to know how to do it. And the only way to handle it is either to give him no translation at all, and then you failed in your definition of translation, or you can have to reveal a secret that there was no other way to cover. Now we see from this, this is a wonderful idea in its own right, we see from this that the depth in Torah is hidden, and axiomatically it's hidden in such a way, in Chumash certainly, it's hidden in such a way that there's no access, there's no access, that means there's not even a hint of what it is, meaning that anybody has access to it access to the simple at least to the simplest level you can be six years old read commerce from beginning to end and you will be able to translate it and have no problem at all when you're not six anymore but you're 16 and when you're not 16 but you're 26 and 36 and 40 and as you grow in torah study you see layers and levels that were undreamt of before and then you begin to realize the deeper you go that the more superficial levels were really not not the meaning at all they always remain true because we have an axiom in torah Interpretation or Torah study that no deeper level can ever controvert a more superficial level. It can only add. That means if the Torah says that people walked in a desert or a man walked up a mountain, so it will always mean that literally. You may never take that away. Only you realize more and more as you grow that the more primary meanings are the ones that are deeper and less and less significant become the physical the physical meaning is the fact that people walked in a desert or somebody climbed a mountain is far less important than the journey that's being described in spiritual terms. But it never becomes untrue. No matter how sophisticated you become in your Torah understanding, it will always mean what it means at the simple level. And therefore it should be clear that the Torah cannot speak about the next world, which would be by definition revealing that which the human eye cannot see. Who could grasp such the only, the only ones who could grasp would be those rare individuals who are able to penetrate completely the, 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 the mask of the physical, while yet here, the Torah has to be written so that those aren't the only people who can appreciate what it's saying, but rather everybody can, and therefore for them it was put in between the lines. For them it doesn't make any difference if it's put in between the lines. It, that is the second reason that this is, that this is so. Incidentally, the Chavats Chaim used to say, it's a fascinating thing to note, you know, the four levels of Torah depth we call pardes, right? The four letters in Hebrew, pardes meaning the orchard. Yeah, it's a beautiful metaphorical allusion to walking in the orchard of Torah where the fruits are, where the fruits grow. But the word pardes is an acronym for four layers. Pshat, remes, drush, and sod. Pshat meaning the simple meaning, simple literal meaning. People walked in a desert, it means people walked in a desert. Rem, uh, uh, remes means the hinted level, what you call the allegorical or the level that lies beneath the surface. Drush, the third level, means that which must be delved for or dug or derived by, by far much more, much more deep level. And the fourth is Sod, which is called the secret. Sod in Hebrew means a secret level. That's the fourth level. The Rav Schaim said that the real order is not like that. The correct order of understanding in Torah does not go Pshat, Remes, Drush and Sod. It starts with Remes. That's the most simple level. Remes being the hinted level. That's the first and most primary one, the most basic. Second is the depth that we call Drush, which is a much deeper level. Third comes the Kabbalistic or totally hidden world. And then you understand Pshat. Only after you've gone through those levels, then you know what the simple meaning is. It really comes last. Why do we put it first? If it really comes last, why do we put it first? (coughs) Because because you can't start somebody with a hint if they don't speak the language the natural process is if i want to share a secret code with you and i'm interested in what the code conveys but i cannot i cannot speak in code with you unless we've agreed on the language is this right if i'm going to speak italian to you as we travel through italy and every time i use a certain italian word you'll know that i mean something secret you know you better speak italian if you don't speak the language then you're not going to get the hint And therefore, when we take a child who doesn't speak Torah, we first have to teach him the simple meaning. Not because that's what we want him to understand. We're not teaching him historical, geographical, biological uh, uh, work. That's not what Torah is. But in order to give him the deeper level, we first have to have him speak the language. So we start with Pshat, which is the superficial meaning, only because you have to start there. But that's not what growth should end in. Growth should end in going through all the layers and then knowing what Pshat was all about. They say that the Chavetz Chaim, at the end of his life, used to study Chumash like a child. Used to study it with a, the glee of a little child, uh, and they, they tell stories. great with the Mir They tell about him trying to learn Torah on the level of an experiential experience of a child. I mean, I, I once heard from a amazing. I once heard from a Rosh Yeshiva who was in Mir at the time that during one lunch hour in the yeshiva, I mean, it's like a, it's a, it's a very strange story. But I mean, I heard it from someone who was there during one lunch hour in Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem they heard a noise from the Mashger's room, which was a disaster. I mean, it sounded like there was an explosion. They thought there was an explosion, and there was like a real disaster, not just a small noise, a major noise. They ran up to his room, and they found him buried under a pile of stenders. He was buried, they had to him from a pile of the Yeshiva Stenders which he'd schlepped up to his room, and he had propped up in two walls, reaching the ceiling, so that he could walk through them and get a feeling of what walking through the Red Sea was like when the seas it. he wanted to experience it Uh, it seems what he experienced was some of the Egyptian experience I mean you're talking about a great sage whose intellect was unsurpassed and he was trying to get back to the level of simplicity of the actual experience and finally there's one more word one and a half more words about the concept of the secret level which is unfathomable just, just we should not make a mistake the word sod which is the fourth of the levels yes in the simple system the secret level which we know as Kabbalah or the mystical level of Torah it's a very great mistake to think that the word means a secret in the English sense the word sod in Hebrew means secret but the English connotation of a secret is something that no one's told you Something that they are keeping secret from you. If someone tells you, then it won't be a secret anymore. People think that the Kabbalistic wisdom is that kind of a secret. Meaning, if only someone would tell me, then I would know it. And people's concept is that somewhere in some distant corner of the old city of Jerusalem is an individual with a long silver beard. And if you can just track him down and get him to teach you, then you'll know it but you, you realize with a moment's thought that it cannot mean that at all because then the word secret would be a completely it would be a completely temporary and arbitrary word it would mean it's only a secret for those who don't know but those who have been told it's no longer a secret words in hebrew always mean what they mean through and through ultimately if it's called secret it means it is always a secret even after they tell you it remains secret it cannot be said it's a wisdom that cannot be put into words it's not because nobody told you yet it's because nobody could tell you it's a wisdom that has to be reached in a transcendent mode. It's something that no teacher can ever tell, his, can ever tell his, his disciple. He cannot tell his student because words do not exist. You're talking about a wisdom that transcends what any finite words could convey. And therefore, it's, it means secret in essence, not secret because accidentally no one told you. That's incidentally why the Mishnah says that when the Master teaches his Talmud, when he teaches his, his, his student in, in these depths of wisdom, he says only the headings, he says only the general areas and the Talmud has to grasp the inner meaning himself. People think again, it's some sort of a game. You know that the Rebbe tells only a hint and the Talmud has to work it out. It doesn't mean that. It means that the Rebbe, despite all the will in the world to say it over, cannot say more than the general direction. Some students of this wisdom say that all the Master can do is push the student over the edge. He cannot, it's only when you fall in yourself that you know what it is. Once you fall in, it's obvious. All he can do is get you close enough so that you get it accidentally. But he cannot say what it is. (coughs) A very crude analogy would be if you've ever tried to use language to convey a skill that cannot be put into words. If you've ever tried to give somebody in words the idea of how to do a knack or a... Try to explain to somebody in words how to balance on a bicycle. See if it will help them at all. (coughs) But all you can do with your clumsy efforts of words and demonstration is all you hope to do is get them close enough so that they get it accidentally. Sooner or later they sort of get it accidentally and then they can't figure out what you've been going on for for so long. (laughs) Because none of it made sense anyway. (laughs) That's a very simple analogy, but that's what what the meaning of sod is. And finally, (coughs) finally, just to note one exception to this rule, which is not an exception at all, is that the simple, meaning of, the simple meaning in the Torah is always what the words say simply. If it says that people walked in a certain place, or a man walked up a mountain, then it always means that simply as it says it. What's not said but is beneath the surface is the deeper wisdom and that by definition is taking years and years or a lifetime of delving to achieve any understanding of what that is. The exception to this, the exception to this, in fact the reversal of this, is the first portion in the Torah. And we don't have, we're not going to go into it fully now, but just to mention, the first portion in the Torah, the beginning of the Torah that describes the creation itself, all those experiences of the world coming into being and the initial experiences of the human beings who inhabited that garden, <coughs> The deeper sources say that in the, in, in, for, uh, up to the stage where the world was completed and they, they were exiled from the garden, that whole experience up to there is all written in reverse. Written in reverse means if you understand, if you understand this correctly, you 'll never be the same again <laughs> at least at least at least for a week <laughs> at, at least for tonight. Rabbi Yeruchim says this clearly. It says this, the Torah is written in the axiom, with the axiom that everything it says simply means exactly what it says. What the real meaning is, in other words, the inner meaning, the depth, the Kabbalistic meaning, right? The mystical meaning is not in the words, it is beneath and it takes a lifetime of effort. In the first portion of the Torah that describes the creation, what the words mean simply is the Kabbalistic meaning and what it looked like physically will take you a lifetime to derive. In the first part in the Torah, it's the reverse. The rest of the Torah says the physical meaning, and what it says, you can picture, a lifetime of work will give you a feeling of what's beneath the surface. In the first Pasha of the Torah, where the Torah begins, where it's describing the moment of formation, it's talking about the inner world, not the outer world. It's talking about the process of the higher world coming down to the lower world. There, what it says literally is the inner meaning, and what it looked like physically, go and figure out. What the Torah is describing there is an inner meaning explicitly. What it looked like is impossible. It's just as difficult to figure out what it looked like as it is to understand the depth of any other part of Torah. And if you feel you're inadequately qualified to understand the mysterious and mystical depth of the deep parts of the Torah, you're at least as unqualified to try to picture what they looked looked like in that garden. You know, some some Kabbalistic sources say that the way Adam looked, just to give you a, a... try and put some flavor to it and taste to it, the way Adam looked in that garden, the way they looked, that human being in that garden, was the opposite of the way we look now. Meaning, if you look at a human being now, at this end of history, so you see a creature it looks like an animal. It looks like an animal. You look at a human being, objectively you see a monkey. And in fact the world teaches that, that we are animals. They're quite clear about it, that we are part of the family of animals. They have no doubt about it at all. It's the only difference between a human and an animal the source, again, these sources say, is what we call zivaponim. It's a glow on the face, actually a vertical stature. It's another issue that the deep sources talk about, but the one that's discussed in depth is what's called zivaponim. It means there's a certain light on the face of a human being. That if you look at the face of a human being, especially somebody who does not live in an animal fashion, especially somebody who's put effort into, into, into personal growth, you look at the face of somebody who studied Torah for a lifetime, look at the photographs, of the greats of the previous generation just look at the photographs of those faces if you're sensitive and you wish to see it there's a glow on the face it's almost imperceptible and it's rapidly being stamped out and it's almost indistinguishable from an animal but something is there when Adam was created he looked opposite if you looked at him all you saw was an incandescent light of the spirit and if you tried very hard you could make out the wisp of a body that surrounded the light Exact opposite mode. Now the spirit is so damp that it almost fails to glow out at all. And then it was so bright that the body failed almost to manifest at all. That's the way it was. Can you picture that? The Gemara says that when Adam and Eve were created, Adam and Chava, they were one being. They were fused by the back. They were fused back to back. There was no back. They were a man and woman in one body who had only faces. The deep sources explain it means that there was no side of darkness. That means... The back is always the side of negativity, of excretion, of unrecognizability. That means the two of them existed in such a way... There's even one Kabbalistic source, believe it or not, that says that man and women were formed back to back like two street fighters who find themselves threatened by thugs in a dark alley. They put their backs to each other to protect their vulnerable side. So man and women were created that there's no side of vulnerability... The same sources say, of course, that it means there was no possibility of a relationship either. And that's why they were ripped apart, making them dangerously vulnerable but able to fuse into a being where they could relate to each other and face each other. And that's a whole... Big, major discussion in the, all the Kabbalistic sources, exactly what that means. Can you picture what that looked like physically? It's a tragic mistake to do that. There's only one mistake more tragic than trying to picture that scene with the eyes. And that is making children's books in which you draw pictures for the children to see. If you want your children to have no relationship to Torah at all, you buy them that sort of Bible, Bible book where Adam and Eve are drawn in the kind of fashion that would grace some of the magazines of the Netherworld. That's not what you do. Some sources say that children shouldn't be shown pictures of anything in Torah. Because let alone what happened back then, but to picture the face of Moshe Raban, of Moses, what the Jews looked like in that generation, anything you could draw is a mistake. is a tragic mistake. Some say you can draw not the faces. Some say the authorities who say that it's okay to draw pictures for children because they picture things anyway. That's a discussion in the theory of education. But back then, when by definition the physical appearance was the, was not... Do we have energy to look at the third answer? Yes? I know we're not going to finish all seven tonight, let alone the transcendent ones, Mm -hmm. the higher ones. Mm -hmm. Another few minutes? (laughs) (coughs) Doesn't appear (laughs) unanimous. (laughs) Well, let's risk it. Let's risk it. Let's look at least... Yes, let's see if we can get a little further. (laughs) The third answer that he brings, Quetzal Ibn Ezra here again, says the following thing. (coughs) Again, this is a remarkably uniquely Jewish approach. He says this. Rebbeinah Bechaya holds like this as well. The Ramban also says this. All the endpoints that the Torah talks about, Koleh y- ye'udim Shebatera, ye'ud y- in Hebrew means, Ya'ad in Hebrew means a destination. Ye'ud in Hebrew means like a destination of motivation. It's like a, Ya'ad means a point of meeting in destination, a rendezvous at the end of a journey. And Yeud Yeudim in the Torah means those points of, the points we long for as endpoints. Those are supernatural. All the, L- listen carefully to what's going on here. All the endpoints that the Torah talks about are supernatural. Why? Because, again, this is uh, the genius of this. Is I mean the, the Ramban doesn't need my scorn, you understand, but uh, <laughs> doesn't need my approbation. Nevertheless, one can't help expressing <coughs> the the the, this, the the amazement at the freshness of this. He says this: all the things the Torah talks about are mis- are, are transcendent and unnatural, supernatural. Why? Because what does it say here? It says that if you keep the mitzvahs, rain will fall in its season. That is magical. That's what it says. If you keep the mitzvahs, right, then the rain will fall, animals will be fruitful, the land will be bountiful, etc. That is miraculous. That is supernatural. That's news. That the Torah has to say. But that you keep the mitzvahs, you'll have a spiritual reward. That's natural. That's natural. That the soul should work spiritually and be rewarded spiritually, that's, that's natural. The Torah has to say that. That's absolute, that goes without saying. What could be more natural? That you put, you exert yourself spiritually and the reward will be a spiritual existence. That's completely natural. But you want to come along and tell me that if I do the mitzvahs over here, the rain's going to fall. That is supernatural. So the Torah comes along to say that which is supernatural, it doesn't have to tell you the things that are natural. The way he puts it is that the fact that the soul will go up to the place of its in Hebrew in Hebrew means a quarry it means the place from which the soul is hewn out it's a deep it's a deep suge, a deep discussion in the, in, the, in, the, in the deeper sources the description of how the soul is hewn out from a particular place in the higher worlds it's taken out from that source the Maharaj says everything always longs and seeks its source it will always go back to its source eventually the fact that the soul the neshama will go back to, back to the place from where it was hewn or quarried that's a completely natural completely, completely natural thing. And then, the last point here is extremely significant. And since the Torah goes on to say explicitly that if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you'll be cut off from that source, what could be a more explicit indication that there is such a source? Again, the Torah doesn't say, if you do this, you'll go there. But the Torah clearly says, if you don't, you'll be kept away from it so that in the negative the Torah clearly indicates that there's a spiritual world why doesn't it speak it out explicitly so according to this answer because because the natural only the Torah has to warn you because it wouldn't be fair if it would if you would be cut off from that source without being warned explicitly if they stop you on the road doing something you shouldn't be doing you've got a right to say to them it's not written in the book no amount of argument on the, that individual's part that will stand up in court if it's not written in the rule book the Torah doesn't allow that when it comes to the negative consequences. Here we're not talking about a love relationship. Here we're talking about reading you your rights, you know, your, your future, your, your, your fortune, as they say. And therefore, on the negative side, it certainly talks about being cuddled from the source. From that you can infer the positive. So therefore it's there. But that it should speak it out explicitly, the Torah speaks out the supernatural. What's supernatural? Live correctly in the land of Israel as a nation, and the world will dance to your tune. That's a supernatural... <coughs> consequence and therefore the Torah speaks that out let's just mention one more and we'll stop, we'll stop for this evening it's a shame we'll be able to continue this discussion perhaps on Shwur's or perhaps afterwards and perhaps then we can also look at some of the we have an all night learning session on, on Shwur's perhaps then we can look at some of the fascinating outcomes of, of these things Perhaps just to wet your appetite, we can, we can mention the fact that we said tonight that the Torah means what it says literally throughout the whole, literally in the way we can picture it, throughout the whole description of the world from the creation on. So, how come on Schwurz, when the Torah was given, it says, it says they saw the sounds. When the Torah was given, it says that there was a sound of the shofar and the Jewish people saw the sound. How can you see sound? And if we say that the Torah says literally what it means, such that you can translate it simply that a six year old could understand it, how can they how could they have seen the sounds perhaps i 'm sure we'll have a time to we have time to discuss that meantime you can for homework and preparation you can work on that let's just add one more dimension and we 'll stop there for this evening the um, the fourth approach here is... And again, these are all facets of a diamond, right? They're not mutually exclusive. They operate together. The fourth approach, we'll just mention it briefly and, and, and stop there. There's a lot of detail in the text and you can look it up, is that the Torah here is coming to establish the concept of Ashkocha Ashgacha means that Hashem interacts with your life here and now. Meaning the original pagan nations, and it's expressed in depth in the Kuzari, which discusses these things, the original pagan nations... And, and the Jewish people themselves, at their point of origin, before they were taught and given Torah, they denied that there was any interaction between the higher world and this world. That Hashem took any personal interest and interaction with the world here. The Torah here comes to destroy that idea. The Torah here comes to say that, the inter- that, that right here and now in the physical world, there's a direct interaction. In other words, if you are now doing what you should do, you'll see the results here. Not because it's reward but because the Torah wants to make clear its commitment to the fact that it can be witnessed and experienced here and now why? because those non-Jewish religions that were teaching the opposite in fact there the king of the Khazars says this in the Khazari actually expresses this idea they were teaching that all the rewards are only in the next world and they built up incredible pictures of the pleasures of the next world so the uh, the concept is that when you talk about something that's very far away, that isn't necessarily a motivation. People can see, it's so distant and so far away, it's really not. And the Torah came along to say that you don't have to look far away. That right here and now you can test it out. You live correctly, the results will manifest in interaction with your life. In fact, there in the Kuzari it says that despite the fact that these great and fantastic rewards are discussed, in fact, very few people long to get there fast. Those nations who teach that the next world is an ecstatic place, we don't see people rushing into it to try to get there. Right? Suicidal attempts on Jewish the life of Jewish people by the Muslim world is a unique issue that needs to be discussed as a principle that underlies it. And in fact, there are many sources that say that the final showdown will be explicitly between a, a suicidal attempt to destroy us, not just an attempt to destroy us, but it will definitely, specifically involved the destruction of the attack as well that's another whole discussion but leaving that aside for now the we see that people who talk about a great existence in the next world but they're very happy to stay in this world as long as possible and therefore the torah comes along to say that we are not only offering a reward in the next world that who knows whether it exists or not and how can you ever torah, torah commits itself to a an explicit undertaking That if you live as a nation correctly in this world, you'll feel the consequences in this world. And that teaches the great principle of Ashkacha, Hashem's direct and immediate interaction with the world, which was a break from all previous traditions, and the Torah makes that explicit. Now, we'll stop here for this evening. We've studied here the first four approaches to this question. Again, they need all to really be studied. Each one needs to be seen in the light of the others, because each one adds dimensions to the others. There's a lot of work that needs to be done here. But, Mitzvah on Shuris, we perhaps try to take at least some aspect of this further and perhaps when we, after Yom we try to complete all seven of these answers.